I'm Ian, and I'm a priest, and this is All Things Right and Musical, and we are delighted to have with us today Gray Maggiano, the rector of Memorial Episcopal Church in Baltimore, Maryland. Welcome, Gray. Thanks, Ian. It's great to be with you all, and great to uh, talk about uh, the stuff that gives us life. Absolutely. Before we, before we delve too deeply into liturgy, um, and we want to have a conversation about sort of liturgy during a pandemic and, and what you found uh, in, your, in your congregation, in your context. But before that, um, some people may have heard of you or of your, um, of your church recently in the news. Uh, and so I, I, I wanted to acknowledge that um, you have some some pretty big news that you've recently announced. Is that right? Yes. Uh, at our annual meeting in January, we uh, uh, the congregation voted unanimously uh, for three things. One was to uh, establish a reparations and justice initiative in honor of a, a recently uh, departed deceased member of the congregation. Uh, and the other was to, to withdraw uh, 10% of our endowment to commit towards that effort and then pledge to match that 10% in our budget this year and for the following um, five, four years. So a total commitment of about half a million dollars uh, towards that justice and reparations initiative. Uh, and the other was that uh, to do a capital campaign to renovate our sanctuary so that it can be utilized uh, as a space uh, for, for justice and reparations to happen. So it's not just being used on Sunday mornings, but actually is a functional space for uh, groups to use throughout the week. Yeah, and, and you said that this has been sort of the culmination of a long process. Is that right? Yes, uh, I've, I've had a lot of phone calls and conversations with folks over the last couple, uh, last week or so, kind of saying, you know, how can we do this? And, you know, I, when I say that this is sort of the, 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 the beginning of a new project and the end of a four-year process of, of conversation uh, and truth-telling, they all kind of get nervous because uh, <laughs> that seems like a long time in the life of a church. Uh, gosh, it's a lectionary cycle and a third. Right, uh, right. But, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was a long period of, of us coming together to understand our history as a parish, uh, our, our, our participation in the legacy of slavery here in Baltimore, uh, coming to grips with the reality that the, the founders of the church were slave owners, uh, that they enslaved people, including the family of one of our, of our deacon, um, and that they were, that the parish was an active participant in segregation and Jim Crow laws here in Baltimore up through the 1960s. Um, and it, it was, you know, four years was, you know, well spent just slowly um, picking this apart and understanding what it means and, and also understanding the impacts that, you know, you can still see the red lines that were drawn on maps to stop African-Americans from buying homes, that you can still see um, the, the, the inequality in our school system uh, from schools that have been continually segregated and the disenfranchisement of voters uh, that, that our congregation worked really hard to participate in. So um, 
it's been it was an exciting annual meeting because we all i think felt that we we are in a place now where we can credibly begin this kind of uh, reparative restorative work mm-hmm and I mean, it, it seems, uh, especially to the outside, a commitment of of half a million dollars over five years seems seems pretty remarkable. I mean, it's it's a it's a significant investment in in reparations uh, and in and in racial reconciliation that you're making. But you've said elsewhere uh, part of what makes it part of what makes it remarkable is the fact that other people are doing so little. <laughs> is that is that right? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I don't want to be too. Uh, shamey or judgy right right but you know i think that we're getting the attention we're getting um because other people you know really are are taking much more tepid steps Mm. towards this um institutions that will set up a separate endowment you know still under their control for um supporting black-led organizations or institutions that will you know kind of do some piecemeal work here and there um but we really recognize that uh, for for our congregation, for this community to um, reasonably be a living example of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we have to radically rethink how we engage with the city, um, how we engage with the, the, the neighborhoods right around us, um, and how we seek to share in, in this common life. Uh, we have a, a sister parish, St. Catherine of Alexandria. It's a historically black Episcopal church. It's eight blocks away from us. Uh, and they, you know, the the among the reasons that they exist is because we wouldn't let them come to our church right Mm -hmm. um we wouldn't let them have come to our party so they had their own party um and that a lot of this this work in conversation and particularly the liturgical aspects of this reconciliation work we've been doing with them Mm -hmm. uh for example once uh we decided once we recognized that uh, our, our deacon natalie conway's ancestors had been enslaved at the hampton plantation by the founders of this church we went to hampton with saint catherine's and um, after touring the facilities did a uh, a libation ceremony uh, out in the in the garden um, where members of both churches got together and uh, poured out holy water offering prayers for for those who've come before us and the last two to participate were uh, S- Steve Howard, who's a descendant of the Howard family who had enslaved the Cromwell family, and Natalie Conway, who's a descendant of the Cromwell family. Um, and it became, you know, a, a, certainly an emblematic moment for the kind of work that we're trying to do. Uh, and we've tried to, you know, put liturgical pieces into this process throughout uh beginning with the Stations of the Cross prayer walk, focused on uh, the, the history of racism in our community, to uh, you know a homecoming service that was uh, you know also a moment to atone uh, to when we took down the plaques from the sanctuary walls. Uh, we had two historic plaques in the rear of the church that were monuments to the two founders. So we're actually we were a memorial to to. Henry Van Dyke Johns and Charles Ridgely Howard, both both slave owners and both Confederate supporters. Um, when we took those plaques down, we used the restoring of things profaned mm-hmm. liturgy from the Book of Occasional Services, um, which might get me in trouble with liturgical police. I don't know if that's <laughs> technically allowed, um, but it, it became it was a really powerful moment to acknowledge that like there was 
this this place needed to be you know re reconsecrated in a way mm-hmm. um, to acknowledge something different mm-hmm. now those other uh liturgies that you talked about the yeah. the stations of the cross um throughout baltimore and the uh the libation ceremony what did you come up with those liturgies yourself are those are those sort of made out of whole cloth or were they cobbled together or, or did you have a different source uh, it depends. Uh, Natalie, um, you know, actually is a, is a pretty excellent liturgist. So she uh, put together quite a few of them. Um, I put together the, the restoring of things profane service, pretty much just straight out of the book of occasional services. Mm-hmm. And then when we re- re- we move the plaques to our rear garden, and they're sort of now permanently ensconced in two little niches. Um, in the in the rear and when we did that uh we sort of we i I initially thought we should do um the the service uh the the the, what is it called the the secularization of a sacred space Mm uh and i checked with the bishop and he's like i don't think you need to do that (laughs) that's that's that may not be quite the liturgically appropriate Mm -hmm. thing Uh, but we did you know there are some pieces from that some some prayers in there that we use to to acknowledge that we are we are placing these things here not in a religious context but in a historical context mm-hmm. uh, to remind us of our past and to challenge us to be uh, more emblem more better examples of the of the gospel than than these two individuals were yeah and that's i think important for me anyway mm-hmm. uh doing a lot of history here in baltimore and recognizing that you know the 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 four confederate statues that were put up in baltimore city um throughout the first part of the 20th century were all dedicated in sort of consecration like services um the dedication of the monument closest to us which was done by the then rector of our parish was you know the the first thing they did was say the Lord's Prayer and the second thing they did was sing Dixie, mm-hmm. uh, and so these were I mean it was unmistakable liturgy uh, taking place even with sermons and saying the Apostles' Creed and uh, so I think it's important to counteract that with the with with how we approach these things today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really fascinating to think because, because we so often think of the liturgy and as, as sort of monolithic and we think of it in terms of our Eucharistic liturgy, maybe, or maybe, maybe go as so far as to think about morning prayer and even song, but we don't often think about those sort of liturgical moments that really help shape and guide us as communities in some ways. And, and, and it sounds like on sort of both ends, the, the present and the past, uh, that, that, that liturgy has been formative for the entire community in a way. Well, I think it's a, it's a, um, what's the, what's the, the line from the, it's, it's, it's a language understood if by the people, right? <laughs> that this is, this is, uh, we are uh, a, a people of, of deep tradition. And so when we, when we see that tradition uh, reflected back to us, uh, we, it touches a different part of our, of our, of our soul than if we're just sort of reading something intellectual or, uh, you know, taking a picture of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think, I think it helps to it helps people feel rooted right. um, in the work. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's just really fascinating, especially especially knowing that that sort of liturgy has helped lead y- your congregation and your community in this direction. I think during the pandemic, we've reached a time where um, we're starting. Maybe even those of us who are who, who are staunch traditionalists are starting to think about the liturgy in different terms um, because we're forced to. Right? We're forced to do it differently <laughs> than we've always done it, or, or or do it in other ways. Um, and it sounds like you've already. I mean, in some ways, dealing with this and, and marking this process liturgically has already forced you to do some of that creative thing. Thinking, um, mm-hmm. do you think that's had an effect on on the way that your liturgical life has has shaped up as a community during the pandemic? Yeah, I think certainly looking back on the the choices our church has made in the pandemic and the just the way we formed our worship and, and liturgy together over the last year has certainly been uh, uh, impacted by by the way that we've used liturgy to to. to to tell and retell our story. Uh, I, I was just suddenly drawn back to a moment in seminary where um, I, as a, you know, an idiot uh, uh, middler was running liturgy at VTS. And uh, it was like the last, we were the last chapel team that, that year. And we said, oh, well, uh, let's do a, a quiet meditative, you know, service, uh, because it was sort of finals time and we set everything up and I got like a little square table that I put in the middle and I put four candles on each end and lit the candles. And then, uh, Case Ramey, who was the, the senior on the team at the time, just looked at me and said, so, so why did you do that? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. And it just, it was a helpful reminder that like we, that it, the things we do in worship need to be intentional. Uh-huh. There's got to be intentionality about it. It can't just be because it looks nice or it was cool or I didn't couldn't think of anything else to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that you know less is more in 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 our in our worship, and uh, that there needs to be thoughtfulness and intentionality about it. And so we've tried to do that, you know, in 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 all aspects of our pandemic worship. Um, that you know, if we make a decision to do something, it's there's a reason for it, not just because. I think early on, we definitely did a lot of like, well, why not? Yeah. Um, you know, our Holy Week services were a disaster because we tried to like be on Zoom and have stuff pre-recorded and do stuff live from like three different locations and still like have all the traditional stuff, and it just was chaotic. Um, you know, and because mainly, you know, at that point, it was like me on a phone camera with my dog barking in the background and kids yelling and so um but we eventually realized that we need to again sort of take a step back and focus on the things that we need to do and that for us the value uh, the the one value that's run through all of these different liturgical things that we've done has been community Mm -hmm. that um the things that we can do together, whether it's a, you know, Stations of the Cross prayer walk or a libation ceremony or, uh, you know, a litany for racial healing, that um, 
it, it allows the community to come together and invite the Holy Spirit into the space and to be present. So we decided to do all our worship on Zoom mm-hmm. uh, and have everybody on, you know, in their little screens and to, you know, try as much as possible to get as many people involved in the liturgy. Um, so you have having different readers cycling through from home, uh, inviting people who have never been in the church to take part in that team so they can also be a part of it to kind of expand the circle. Um, and as we got better, we started to uh, incorporate better music. Um, you know, I think at first, it, gosh, oh, I mean, we tried to sing some hymns. Obviously, that doesn't work. We learned. <laughs> um, but, you know, now we have uh, our choir director has figured out to get choirs from our church and St. Catherine's together once a week. Uh, and they record two hymns together on Zoom. Uh, I don't know how she does it. It's amazing. Um, and so then you know, the last the last hit closing hymn every week is a joint hymn between these two parishes who are gathering for worship together every Sunday. Um, and, and, you know, you can just kind of pick out people's voices sometimes and hear who's singing which parts. And, uh-huh. um, and then everyone else is on mute and singing along at home. Right. Um, and it's, it's really become kind of a wonderful thing uh, to figure out how to create a community on, on Zoom. Um, and, you know, initially we were having sort of long coffee hours after church. Mm-hmm. Um, and now uh, most people don't stay for coffee hour because they're getting their sort of community fix during the service. Right. Uh, you know, we took down the PowerPoint and a lot of the parts of the service. People can just look at each other and see each other. Mm-hmm. Um, we live stream the Eucharist from the sanctuary um, because our, our deacon, I said, you know, should we just like record the Eucharist in advance. She's like, no, you can't, you can't pre-record the, you know, the Eucharist. Uh, and I know lots of people do, and I, I, I don't, I don't, you know, everyone's making hard decisions during the pandemic. But I think she, you know, she was absolutely right that if this is, if we believe that this is an act that we do, in, uh, you know, a prayerful act that we do as a community, then it doesn't happen if it's just me by myself recording it in advance. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, it requires all of us to be in, in, in prayer together, saying this together. Um, uh, and, and the thing that I love best about this, and I think another way that it relates to a lot of our racial reconciliation work, is that it requires a lot of humility because <laughs> uh, things are going to go bad. It's the technology is going to crap out. Someone's not going to be able to, you know, read at the right time. You're going to flub your sermon. Uh, Someone's going to distract you while you're, you know, consecrating at the altar. And and it won't look perfect. Um, And I think acknowledging that we are not perfect is a big part of why we come to church, right? I mean, um, that's why we say the confession every week. And, And that process of being humble about our failings, acknowledging that we've messed up and tried harder is what this reconciliation work is about. Uh, and I think a lot of churches and communities have trouble getting to real racial reconciliation because they're not willing to have that humble moment. Um, they're not willing to go deep enough to acknowledge the real pain and hurt and torment they've caused um, to acknowledge those mistakes in order to move forward. Um, and in many ways, you know, 
acknowledging your terrible Zoom operator status uh, is a practice, right, for, for acknowledging other things you've done bad that are much, much worse. Mm -hmm. uh, but if we're so preoccupied with everything being perfect on, you know, an online YouTube service that 60 people watch, how are we ever going to admit failure anywhere else? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, I, you know, it's an interesting... David and I have had conversations about this on the podcast uh, relatively recently. Um, actually, maybe in a podcast recording that hasn't been released yet. But um, one of the things that we've we've been talking about is uh, is sort of the the urge to to make things polished, right? Um, and I don't mean to say that liturgy ought to be sloppy or that should be what we're aiming for. Um, but but there is a sense in which um, what separates our communal prayer from our personal prayer is making space for other people. And anytime you're making space for other people, there's a certain amount yes. of I don't want to say chaos, um, mm -hmm. but 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 elements that you obviously can't control. Um, and and so I think that there is, like you say, an element of humility. Um, in, in saying we're going to do this together, even knowing there's there's a, there's a very low probability that we're always going to be right on at every possible <laughs> moment, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, I, I, this is a ridiculous comparison, but I'm, you know, just in my head thinking about, uh, you know, two Will Ferrell movies, uh, Anchorman and Talladega Nights. Uh -huh. uh, and in both movies, he has two kids. And then the, in Anchorman, yeah, sort of, he imagines these two children who have perfect behavior and won't look at, he said, you know, no eye contact. <laughs> right. um, and they don't do anything wrong. And uh -huh. then in Talladega Nights, they're like wild children, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, we don't really want our liturgy to look like either of those families. <laughs> uh, uh -huh. But there's somewhere in the middle there that like, yeah, that you you allow, you have to allow space for for Christ to enter the room. Yeah, uh, and and that happens um, in those little mistakes, in those little hiccups, in those little gaps. In the same way that often someone's favorite part of your sermon was the thing you didn't mean to say. Yeah, um, right. You know, the, the the best part of the liturgy is often the thing that we didn't mean to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's you know, in some ways, I think uh, um, it's interesting. I wasn't thinking of Will Ferrell and and his children in those two movies, but I was thinking about the sort of ongoing argument that you end up having in churches about to what degree should children be seen versus heard in the liturgy, right? And that's maybe a sort of form of this conversation that we're more familiar with, I think, um, in that a lot of congregations especially if they're you know if they're used to doing things a certain way the instant you have a little bit of disruption the instant you have a little bit of crosstalk or you know um action going on when other things are supposed to be going on you start to end up with people dissatisfied with with what they view as an interruption to their worship experience right Mm -hmm. And I, and that's what, to me, that's what differentiates communal prayer is that it's not just my worship experience. It's our worship experience and what, what that all looks like. 
Yeah, and so our, our solution to that at Memorial, pre-pandemic, obviously, we had, my kids are like the loudest kids in church. They always <laughs> have been. Um, and the, so we had the kids in like a little alcove off the side of the, the, the main sanctuary mm-hmm. um, for the little nursery area. And it was just so loud all the time. I mean, we have a big old stone building, so the echoes are just, you know, tremendous. Yeah. And like no one could, no one could see them uh, except me from the altar, and they couldn't really see much of going on because there was all this stuff between me and them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just you heard the sort of disembodied yells every so often during the service, right? Uh, and so we decided. I said, like, let's just put him in the middle of the church. Uh, so we basically we we moved half the chairs in the front of the church because our tr- our church at that point was half pews and half chairs. Don't ask. Uh, and we took half the chairs out and put the the rug in the middle there with like the little kids chairs around it um and they were quieter they paid attention mm-hmm. we got a little like soft communion kit that they would like they would mimic the communion that they were that the eucharist on the altar was we as they were as i was doing it they would sort of mimic it back to me um and and also and they were much more connected to the liturgy and people felt more connected to them uh, and yeah, and the way we did it was uh, basically I started preaching. I think it was it was one of the Sundays when we have Jesus saying, you know, suffer the little children unto me. Uh, and so in the middle of the sermon, I invited everyone to come forward and move a chair and then move everything over so we could keep the kids there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and but but it it was it does take reminding people that like this is worship for all of us not worship for you right um and i think that danger that we face all of us face as clergy right now is people are able to highly curate their worship experiences Mm -hmm. because everyone's everything's on everything's online yeah um and what happens when we go back (laughs) and we try you know how many people are just gonna stay right like oh i i like you know doing it for my kitchen counter while i'm drinking my coffee right um you know, I, I have no doubt that there'll be a huge rush back to church once we have sort of everyone kind of vaccinated, you know, whether that's this fall or whatever. But after that, I think it's, I think we're all in a little bit of, uh, of danger of, you know, are, do we just, is this another just permanent decline in church attendance uh, or a term, shift in how people attend and participate in church? It may be a better way to say it, but mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and you know, especially with the knowledge that um, a lot of our online offerings are liable to continue for a while, and some people, you know, I think rightly saying this is not something we're ever going to get rid of now. Um, yeah. That online uh, online access in some form needs to be available because that's uh, to me that's one of the blessings of this pandemic is that we've been able to connect with people. We've been forced to sort of go out of our way to connect with people that we're all too often forgotten about um, that can't necessarily be a part of our Sunday morning worship or can't can't get there every single Sunday morning. So, you know, there's benefits to that. But if that if that never goes away, are there going to be people for whom the convenience of it outweighs the, the sort of community aspect of, of gathering together? And, you know, are they, like you say, are they, if they, 
if they can't mute everybody else or mute their computer when they're live in person? <laughs> uh, does that does that sort of um, sit mm-hmm. well with them after the fact after they've had the opportunity to sort of walk away or you know pull up some music while the sermon is is, is uh, being preached? And I try and have. You know, I try and make sure that we always have some part of the service that is highly participatory. Mm-hmm. Um, so that people hear themselves talking or hear other people talking um, across the Zoom, even if it's a little chaotic. Because I think people, you need to have that reminder that you are like, you are doing this with other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and so we do, you know, we. We do our, uh, and one thing that's been really fascinating is watching like how our, like the, the, the prayer, the prayers of the people have really changed. Um, Cause we didn't really, we weren't, we were never like a shout out names congregation mm-hmm. um, during the prayers of the people. And now like, it's just nonstop in the chat um, prayers for this and this and this and this. And then people are checking up on each other's prayers from last week and saying, Oh, how is that going? What's going on with this? And then, um, we have a, you know, they love doing this like blessings and thanksgivings time where at the announcements people come up and offer their you know blessings and thanksgivings that week um and now that's extending like longer and longer <laughs> on the zoom uh, and uh, you know i think it's just all different ways to remind people that there's a real there are real bodies on the other side of those squares uh-huh. and that uh, when we all when we come back we'll be able to to be together again and i do i worry about churches that are just um, doing, you know, YouTubes or just, you know, uploaded sermons. Um, and every, you know, every church has their own challenges and technological capability, but, um, a year is a long time to, to go without community. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's certainly a long enough time to break a habit Yeah, uh, and church is a habit. Mm-hmm. We hope. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking back over the past year, I'd love to hear your thoughts about maybe one good thing that you've learned or experienced um, in terms of worship during the pandemic, and uh, maybe one bad thing or one thing that you uh, can't wait to be over for it to be over um, about the pandemic. And you can you can go bad fo- first if you want to uh, close on a good note. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean. I was- <laughs> Gosh, you know the, the 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 list of bad things is is legion, and there's <laughs> there's too many demons there to to, to wrestle up, uh, and and uh, I suspect they'd be be the same for most people. But I think the the inability to visit people when they're in the hospital, mm-hmm. uh, to sit at someone's bedside, to pray with them in those in those moments, uh, is uh, is is really terrible, and we've. We've recently found we've created some good ways to do similar things, to do sort of a bedside vigil on Zoom with a small number of family members. Uh, but it's certainly not the same, and and, and, and that's, um, to, to, I think, to, to all of our detriments. Um, and and the, the inability to do large, you know, funerals. We've had, we've lost two just saints of our parish this year, and um, neither from COVID, both were, uh, you know, uh, certainly a, a, of an age where this is not unexpected 
but you know, not that we haven't been able to have, you know, a blow out the walls funeral to celebrate those lives is just heartbreaking. Um, for me, for the congregation, for our spouses, and, and I know I'm not alone in in, in those those feelings. Um, but I think that the, the real joys that I have found have come in the realization that um, that when doing worship in a different context, you have to worship differently. Uh, you know, in the same way that uh, you know, if you're worshiping in in another country, you need to worship in another language. When you're worshiping on Zoom, you need to worship in a different language, mm-hmm. and that that being uh, being comfortable with letting go of things that we've always done um, in order to try new things uh, is is really wonderful uh, for uh, you know I think for um, I'm trying to I want to give you a, a, a decent example here mm-hmm. uh, but for you know for all saints we had this um, you know tradition of kind of you know reading out the names of all the, the folks who have passed away and and this this year became a, a way to really reflect on like well you know do we need to do it the way we've always done it isn't is there a better way to do this and mm-hmm. uh and, and so we uh, you know we're able to involve more people in in the reading the names we're able to make it a more holy moment um to have some sacred music playing in the background um, which is harder to do in church because of the you know d- distraction of sound but it, it could work it worked out well the way we were doing it um and and to you know raise up new people and, and new voices uh, another thing that i try and remind our worship committee of is that we need to be thinking about like inverting the pyramid all the time uh, you know we've been in lent for 10 months uh, so we don't need to dive into like a heavy lent this year uh, and in fact we maybe we need to, how, so how do you bring some levity and joy uh, we ordered, you know, temporary tattoo ash crosses for Ash Wednesday. Uh-huh. Uh, since we can't ash people's foreheads anyway, uh, we can, you know, send these out. And it, they're, they will help people reflect in a different way uh, on Ash Wednesday. Um, they will you know, make them, you know, bring a little more levity to their reflections on death, which we're all reflecting on too much these days anyway. Mm-hmm. Um and and be a way to introduce uh, you know Lent in, in a different way, and uh, you know we did similar things at Christmas time. Uh, instead of doing a neighborhood Christmas carol sing, um, where you kind of go from door to door singing, which obviously <laughs> we could not do in in, in, the, <laughs> right. in the pandemic, yeah. um, we invited musicians in the neighborhood to sit in their doorways and play, and then the neighborhood could walk around at you know safe distances outside with masks on and listen. Uh, and just just finding different ways to take what we've always done uh, and 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 find a new way to to share it with folks so they they see it in a different in a different light and, and hopefully see God in a different light yeah yeah i I think the the one thing about this pandemic is uh, there is entirely more forgiveness for creativity in our liturgical life than there than there ever would be on an average sunday right because we're we're having to do things differently i mean you know i never 
never in a million years would you have seen Episcopal churches doing these, um, using the little mini communion kits for Sunday morning worship. Uh-huh. Right. Um, and even, at least in our diocese, we had to make sure we got the slightly more expensive ones that look like plastic wine glasses because it's more dignified, right? <laughs> more more Anglican. Uh-huh. Um, but but that, you know, we, we recognize that, you know, not having the Eucharist for a year is in a tradition that is so, especially, you know, post-79, so Eucharist-centered as ours, that is... It sort of tears apart the whole thing. It tears the fabric of how we understand ourselves. And so finding a way to provide those things uh, and, you know, reach people uh, with with the things that they really need and acknowledging the things that maybe we don't actually need that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of, um, yeah, that, that's, those are the things that uh, I've taken joy out of here. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, Greg, I, I, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to talk to uh, all of our listeners about sort of the liturgical life at Memorial and uh, and all the things that you've been up to, um, both in as part of this um, uh, racial reparations project and and during the pandemic um, as your your part of your communal liturgical life. So, um, just thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Ian. It's been great talking to you and uh, love listening to Right and Musical and looking forward to uh, uh, hearing more and all the ideas you're going to have about how we come back to worship. Yeah, right. <laughs> we better get working. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today for this episode of All Things Right and Musical. If you enjoyed this conversation with the Reverend Gray Maggiano, we hope you'll tell us about it. You can find us on the web at writeandmusical.org. That's spelled R-I-T-E and musical.org. You can always send us an email at writeandmusical at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, where you can interact with your hosts and with other podcast listeners. A special thanks to our generous patrons who support this show on Patreon. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.